Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for this brief time where we can come together as your people and to study the doctrines of Scripture. We pray that as we look to these doctrines of the ordinary means of grace, that we will not merely be uh, hearers of your word, but so be doers, that we will internalize what we have studied and we have learned. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, just as a a very quick recap, we looked at what is baptism? What is baptism? And uh, we looked back to the shorter catechism, question number 94, which says that baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace in our engagement to be the Lord's. And we looked back to Genesis, for example, when we see the introduction of circumcision, that Old Testament sacrament of the covenant people of God, and we looked at how God described it as both a sign and a seal, and then we looked at its correlation within the New Testament of baptism, so also being a sign and seal of the covenant people of God. And that's where the Shorter Catechism draws from in terms of its language of a sign and a seal. And then we proceeded from there to look at what I call the four points of baptism. Uh, Just looking at how does Scripture describe baptism and how does it use by use of, for example, metaphor and analogy, uh, baptism. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and Titus uh, that baptism signifies cleansing from sin. Baptism signifies cleansing from sin. And then we looked at Acts chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8 and saw that baptism signifies the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at Romans chapter 6 and saw that baptism signifies our union with Christ. And then finally, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that baptism signifies our union with other Christians, with the church. So in each of these areas within Scripture, we see that it is pointing us to see baptism as a picture of something. Cleansing, outpouring, union, and and so forth. So that brings us to... Certainly. I can, but I have to have my device. Is Greg here? If you don't mind, get with Greg because it'll take me a while to go get my. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm? Oh, baptism is a picture of. These things of cleansing of sin, of outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of union with Christ and union with other Christians. And so that leads us to some of the more uh, perhaps thorny areas of baptism uh, and looking at them. uh, And just to to be clear, uh, so I know that a number of you uh, are 
are formerly Baptist or Baptistic in, in tradition. And so I know that you'll have questions about, so why do Presbyterians, or quite candidly, why do the, do the traditionally Reformed, uh, uh, why does Calvin, for example, teach infant baptism? We're not getting to that today. Uh, we're going to look at that next Sunday. Uh, so uh, I know you'll have questions on that, and I want to allow plenty of time and, and discussion for that. So if, if, if what I get into today uh, gets you itching for that, just be patient. We're, we're going to allow plenty of time for that next week. Uh, but today, uh, in terms of some of the more thorny issues, uh, I want to look at one of the questions of, does baptism save? Is baptism necessary for salvation? Is baptism necessary for salvation? I would imagine that, that some of you, although not many of you, come from a tradition where that is taught, that, that it is ne- baptism is necessary for salvation. It is a necessity. And so uh, what does the Bible teach on this? Well, first of all, it is helpful for us to ask a question to begin to answer the question, and that question is, did circumcision save? Did circumcision save? Uh, If baptism is the New Testament sacrament correlating to the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision, then we ought to, in terms of a continuity... And this is one of the beautiful things about being in a Reformed church and covenant theology is the continuity of Scripture. And from a continuity standpoint, we should be able to look and ask a question about something in the Old Testament that correlates to the New to help us answer that question. And so I'm asking, did circumcision save? Now, I know that many of you already know the answer to that, but think about it. The Pharisees thought... It did. The most spiritual, the most religiously rigorous, the hardcore conservative Christians of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, believed that circumcision saved. Why? Well, part of the reason is because of the covenantal teaching. There is, as we looked at last week, that you can refer to something... For example, you can refer to baptism and salvation in the same breath because the sign signifies the reality, but those can become so closely intertwined that someone by error can think, aha, well, if, if this signifies this, if circumcision signifies that I am in fact a covenant child of God, ergo... What would you deduce? No circumcision, no salvation. Now, again, part of what we talked about last week is distinction between only men, you know, only boys could be circumcised, so forth and so on. But setting that, that, that point to the, to the aside, the question becomes, why did they believe that? Now, they believed it partly because of the Abrahamic covenant and that correlation between the two. But here... In Romans chapter 4, and I would imagine you good Bible students that you are, were probably already thinking about this, thinking, now hold on, doesn't Paul address that in Romans chapter 4? 
And he does, and I'm going to read it to you. It's Romans chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. But what I want you to think of is, as I'm reading this, also think about the correlation with baptism. This is helpful. Paul writes, How then was righteousness counted to Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Now pause there for just a second. And what would be very helpful in in this is to just pause and think about your reading of Scripture, your knowledge of it. Think about the sequence of events. Paul goes on. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, I'm going to read the rest of the verse, but just again, let's make sure we understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying that if circumcision saves, we have a problem with the application with Abraham. Big problem. Because... Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul will refer to that as justification by faith in Christ alone. Justification by faith. So, if that is the case, then God said He is justified as righteous before me before He was circumcised. So if circumcision saves... We have a problem with Abraham. Now this is where Paul goes on to say, "...the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our, that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised." So again, what's Paul saying here? Paul is saying is, okay, let's use the example of, of Abraham. Abraham believed and he was justified by faith. Then he was circumcised. Now what happens? Now, after Abraham, so Isaac, so Jacob, so on and on, his sons, at too young of an age to make a profession of faith, can't make a profession of faith at eight days old, right? At too young, yet they received that same sign and seal of the covenant, that circumcision, on and on. But it was pointing back to the faith that Abraham had, pointing to the faith that all after him would eventually come to. So, and again, if this is... If this is heavy, heavy waiting, bear with me. We're going to drill down into this more next Sunday. But where I'm going with this is, is that to say that circumcision saves is contrary to the biblical example of Abraham. And this is why when Paul is writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. And what he was saying there is is that you think that you are circumcised and yet you live like the devil? What does that say about your relationship with the Lord? Because there are these Gentiles who are coming along. They're not circumcised, but they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has radically changed their lives. They're living in obedience to Christ. And guess what? They're not circumcised, and yet they will be with the Lord forever. And so the idea that circumcision saved is erroneous. So now that leads us to the question, 
does baptism save? Those that hold that baptism saves, do they have something to stand on? Well, the first problem with the idea that baptism saves is just continuity and consistency with Scripture. For example, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we hear very clearly, it could not be any more clear than this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And we understand that gift to be the faith, that God gives us the faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. And so, by virtue of that gift, it's, it's not us. It's all by the grace of God. The sovereign grace of God, we, we might call it. And so, to put something that we do or someone does to us as a prerequisite for our salvation, that creates a contradiction with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8. And you would say, yes, but don't Lutherans who also hold to justification by faith, don't Lutherans believe that that baptism saves? Now, to be fair, and I I actually don't think we have any former Lutherans here uh, that I recall, but um, to be fair, um, this is a a somewhat elusive conversation with, with a Lutheran. Um, so, for example, I have a, a friend who's a conservative Lutheran pastor, and uh, to sit down with him and talk about this, um, you know, he'll say, well, yes, baptism is necessary. And I say, why is it necessary? And he'll say, because of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, which I'm going to read to you in just a second, and I'll say, you know, okay, I see where you're going there, but I said, but you also believe in justification? Oh, yes, we do. We, we, we believe in, the, in that. And said, so, so if someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're never baptized, well, that, that's a difficult issue. I'm like, well, yeah, it is. <laughs> and so uh, they, they seem, in, in, in my limited experience with, with, with Lutherans, they, they seem to dance around on this issue. Uh, but where they draw from is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Let me read that to you alone. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when they quote this verse, they're keying in on this part. And I know you got it, but it is baptism now saves you. That's that's what they're... They're keying uh, in on. Now, I'm going to quickly erase this since this gets videoed because I can see now somebody just stopping it. And, uh, and uh, you know, Covenant Presbyterian Church teaching Baptist, you know. So, <laughs> however you, you, you do those digital things, Brandon, where it blacks something out. Um, we, so, we, we don't believe that, right? Um, but, as good students of Scripture, we want to understand why, why, don't, why don't we believe that, that Now, I've said this to the point that you've heard it so many times, I, I know that you probably find this obnoxious. Um, but since I'm a professional person of being obnoxious, I'm going to repeat it again. When dealing with a difficult verse, what should we do? Context. 
context. Go way out if you have to. Go way down if you have to, but know the context of the verse. I'm not saying that it will help you 100% of the time with difficult verses, but most of the time when I encounter someone who is struggling with a verse, a single verse, most of the time context helps. So I'm going to read to you this verse in context. See if this helps. I'm going to read to you 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18, going all the way to verse 22. First, or rather, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So, if we look at this in context, so first of all, we now understand what which corresponds to this means. We now understand it's referring back to uh, Noah and his ark, right? But we also see is that Peter is now drawing a comparison between the ark and baptism. That, that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, no, no one would disagree with that. In both instances, believers are saved through the waters of judgment, right? We, we, would, we would say that's a fair statement as well. Is The eight persons upon the ark were saved from God's judgment upon it. So also we can see the, the picture of baptism as saving from the judgment of God. That, that certainly aligns with what we looked at last week in the four points of, of baptism. However, the mere mechanical act of baptism is not what is in picture here. What is in picture here, as we can see clearly, as good, you don't even have to be a good Bible student, just a good student of literature can see, aha, Peter is writing by metaphor. He's writing by analogy. He's wanting to teach us something. He's wanting to give us a picture. And so the picture that he gives is the picture of the ark. He's not wanting to tell us anything mechanical about the ark. He's not wanting to talk about how people got on the ark or how it, it, it floated upon the water or how people got off the ark. He's not talking about anything technical about the ark, isn't, is he? It's just a picture. It's an image. It's a metaphor. So next to that, he presents baptism. The ark upon the water, baptism by water, both of these are metaphors. They're pictures that Peter is using to convey a truth. So neither example is given as a mechanical process. And so Peter is explicitly saying here, now, thinking about this ark, thinking about water, thinking about baptism, he then says explicitly, not as a removal of dirt from the body, meaning, meaning what? I'm not talking about water pouring over you. 
or, or you being immersed in coming out of water to be clean, or you being sprinkled with water to get the dirt off your head, or whatever the case is. I'm not talking about literally pouring water over you like a shower. I'm not talking about that. Rather, what's he talking about? He's talking about the imagery. He's talking about the metaphor, the picture of the ark, the picture of baptism. So in what sense... And this is the crux of the question that used to be written up here. In what sense then does baptism save? In what sense does baptism save now that we have rescued it into the context? Well, yeah, that's right. In in Romans chapter 6, we see that explicitly. So also in Galatia, I mean in Colossians chapter two, we see it implicitly. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That. So that'd be Acts chapter. 3.8, somebody three, say 3.8? 238. 2.38, yeah. Acts chapter 2. There, there, there may be more than one. I, would, I wouldn't say they're plentiful. Um, yeah, so, so we talked about that a little bit last week, is that, that baptism, so for the sake of the, the video, the question is in reference to Peter, for example, preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, that repent and be baptized. What we see there is a call to covenant people of God, to Israel, who are hearing this sermon on that day. They understand who God is They understand the purpose and so forth and so on. But what they have seen and witnessed is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then they have heard uh, Peter pointing them to Christ. Why Christ came. Uh, He even accuses them of crucifying Him. And then speaks of the resurrection. They cry out, what must we do to be saved? In other words, they have already heard the gospel. They've already heard of Christ's life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection. They've heard the gospel. Now what he does is he points them, now you as covenant people of God, you need to believe this beginning with repentance. And that's why in our shorter catechism, when it walks us through... Uh, the, 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 the modes of, not modes, but uh, through the um, uh, Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, um, they begin with repentance unto life. Um, so we repent of our sin, turning to God. They have heard the gospel, and so now he couples that with the sign and seal of that salvation. That, that having repented of your sins, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you should now receive the sign and seal of it. And you might say, well then why doesn't he include in that explicitly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And the reason is, is he has already offered that to them in the gospel. So it is implicit in that. Put it another way is you would never encourage someone to be baptized who's not believed the significance of that baptism. That's how powerful, and I'm actually getting ready to talk about that, is the significance of that baptism is the gospel. 
It is the gospel. So that's his, his appeal. And again, if you think about it in the, in the context of the day of Pentecost, is he's, he's, he's preaching to a fairly um, biblically advanced people. I mean, they, they understand uh, how God has worked covenantally. What he's unpackaging for them is that Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant. So now receive the sign and seal of that covenant, which under the new covenant is baptism. Yes. Yeah, so it doesn't. So, so I, I, I'm going to distance myself from the idea of of not being able to be undone, because that might lead us down the rabbit trail of can you lose your salvation, which we don't believe, and I don't think that's what you're asking. I think the the confusion is semantic. Um, the idea here of a seal is the idea of a letter with wax and an imprintation of a seal upon it. Um, that seal is not to say that someone doesn't uh, open it up and, and read it or whatever the case is. It's a seal saying, this is mine. This is, that's a visible seal. That's right. To say, so when, 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 when so I'll have, Lord willing, uh, uh, the opportunity to, to baptize my grandson in December. Um, which you know, I'm, I'm already I'm already excited about it. In September, um, but but when he re- when he is baptized, um, the seal that he is receiving is a mark. It is a setting apart as a covenant child, and, and notably the child of believing parents. So so we have that also uh, to push to pull back to, which I'll talk about next week. Um, but but. That's right. But, as we talked about last week, baptism does give us the imagery of that, of, of that being sealed by the Holy Spirit. So, but it is not doing the sealing, and nor is uh, it, um, in this case, what we're talking about, salvation, is it actually the, the mode of that. But it is the depiction, it's the mark, it's that, that seal of it. Somebody else? That's right. Yeah. Or 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 two or two happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Which which to be clear it helps explain the sign, but to the point of, of the seal, I think it's a, a valid clarification is it that that seal is that mark. And it's incidentally it's it's and I don't know if I'll, I have time to get to it today. It's it's one of the reasons why we don't rebaptize, uh, in the except in the case where the original baptism was not a valid baptism. Um, so if somebody was, you know, I don't do, do Mormons baptize? I don't even know. Okay, so if somebody was baptized as a Mormon, you know, you know we wouldn't accept that as a valid uh, baptism, but. Uh, uh, but in, in the case of, of most, but not all other forms of baptism, we would accept that because there's no reason to receive the seal again. Once the seal has been made, uh, it's not to be repeated, so to speak. So uh, let me just real quickly then go back to this idea of First Peter and the question of uh, baptism and the correlation to salvation, what I had written on the board. So the question was, is 
in what sense does Peter mean that baptism saves? Because incidentally, it's a pretty, pretty easy translation from the Greek. It's not like this is complicated Greek. That is literally what Peter says. So we don't have to dance around it. The question is, what does he mean? What is the sense in which he is using this? First, baptism saves in the sense that, as, as Susan said just a minute ago, but for the sake of the recording, it represents the inward faith as evidenced in our appeal to God for the forgiveness of sin, for a good conscience. So there, incidentally, Keith, there's that tie-in with repentance right here in this verse of of 1 Peter. The tie-in, for the sake of the good conscience, we are to repent of our, our sin. We are to appeal to God for forgiveness. And so baptism, in this sense, is representing that inward faith. Secondly, baptism is... A visual, not an internal, a visual representation of the reality that Christians are clothed with Christ. And in union with Christ, they share His victory over sin. This is the depiction. Just one second. And so, thirdly, baptism is an outward sign of the inward reality of regeneration which is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit, and this is what we were talking about just a minute ago with Denise's question, that is received only by grace through faith. And again, we'll touch on this next week in terms of how this is a depiction in the sense of Abraham who has believed and been justified as righteous and then receives the sacrament versus his son Isaac who received the sacrament first and then later believed on the Lord Jesus, I mean, <laughs> uh, was justified by faith theoretically. And so we'll look at that. But the, the point is, is that you can say that, salva- that baptism saves and be using it in this metaphorical sense, that it, it represents inward faith, that it is a visual representation, and that it is an outward sign of that inward reality. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. For, for, for the tie-in, we see that, that Noah trusted in uh, God's Word and believed Him and took Him at His Word. And so also, his family was blessed through that. That's right. Now, I want to stay with First Peter for just a second because I think this is key. Because we would have the temptation to just go, Aha! So basically what you just said, John, is Peter uses that in a metaphorical sense. That's pretty much it. But, while baptism does not save, it is. And here's the main thing that I want you to get. In fact, if you didn't get anything else today, I want you to hear this. Baptism is so incredibly, integrally connected to our salvation that... It is, in figuratively speaking, an exchange of words. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. And again, I want to borrow from circumcision. When God is speaking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, when He is speaking to Abraham, listen closely, I'm going to quote it to you. If you're taking notes, it's Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. 
God says this to Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, there are a couple of things to to draw from that. So first of all, what he's saying is, is that this sign is circumcision. I realize this is going to be overly simplistic, but just bear with me. I'm going somewhere. Secondly, we can say that this sign signified God's covenant. So, we can say that circumcision is a sign of God's covenant and therefore can be used interchangeably. In other words, to be able to say, aha. And again, this is, this is incidentally, this was part of the issue with the Pharisees and their legalism and believing that circumcision saved. And so what we have to be careful of is not to go too far and say, aha, baptism is required for salvation, but we need to make sure that we don't distance ourselves too far and hold the integrity of that because the picture of it is beautiful that baptism is that significant. And here's where I go with baptism. So you see this. Now, let me just carry this out in direct correlation with 1 Peter. The sign is, you know what, it would be easier if I just did this. The sign is baptism. What it signifies is salvation. And baptism, therefore, saves And so for Peter, on the day of Pentecost, to your point, Keith, can say, repent and be baptized. Because that's how important baptism is as an outward picture, a sign and a seal of what we have in Christ. So also Peter, interestingly enough, right, the preacher and the writer, same person, can say, now as I give you this analogy of the ark, So also I tell you that baptism saves. And so the idea here is that there is such a connection between the sign and seal and the reality, we should not distance ourselves from it. And and again, you think about this in terms of uh, how important it is for us to be a part of witnessing a baptism. Um, in many cases, baptism is treated as just simply a, a, an act of obedience, get it done, um, and, and, and move on. Uh, but if you believe that baptism carries this significant of a weight of what it tells, and what is it is telling of, then every time we see a baptism, we should say, aha, There's the beautiful picture of God's sign and His seal of His covenant of grace, of what we have in Christ by virtue of God's grace.
All right. Clear as mud? Okay. It, it, it will take a little while. You've got your notes. You, you can chew on this. But before, I've just got a few minutes, I want to touch on just briefly, because this has come up in previous discussion, and I, I, I don't think I'm going to have time to go into it next week. And that is the mode of baptism. Uh, the mode of baptism. Some of you may have heard that the Greek word, and I'm obviously this is an English uh, transliteration, uh, that the Greek verb baptizo uh, means only the immersion of something into water. Now, I, 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 I don't want to be overly sarcastic or demeaning or whatever the case is, um, but so that is just simply not true. So, and I've, I've been asked this a number of times, um, so I actually did a little bit of research into it, and the best that I can understand is that there was a period within Greek literature uh, where it appears based on uh, the manuscripts that we have that that, that, that word um, was used in literature for only immersion. Um, but that is not the case in literature prior to that period, and it's not the case in literature after that period, and it's certainly not the case in terms of biblical literature. So, what is baptizo, to baptize, referring to? Could it be immersion in water? Could it be pouring over the head with water? Could it be sprinkling with water, which is our traditional practice? Which of the three does baptizo refer to? Yes, all of them. It can be dunking a garment to dye it. It can be sprinkling of water as a purification rite. It can be pouring water over one's hands to wash the hands and so forth. And I'm speaking in terms of the, the use of the Greek word. But all three of these are acceptable forms, agree, forms that agree with this one word. And let me also say this, is all three of these forms of baptism have been practiced historically in the church. And you say, how far back? I don't know. But as far back as I can go, uh, we see throughout history that in some cases there were immersions. In some cases there were pourings. And in some cases there were uh, sprinklings, so forth and so on. And so the point is, is that you cannot determine it by the verb and uh, and now I am going to be sarcastic, so prepare yourselves. Um, and as I have said before, in our denomination, we will baptize someone uh, by either of the three forms. The difficulty I have had is immersing someone in that little font. <laughs> Hadn't worked. Probably not going to work. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, we practice sprinkling here, which is an acceptable form of baptism. Well, we've, we've got a lot to go into further on this uh, wonderful, exciting topic of baptism, uh, but we're going to do that next week. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of the sign and seal of baptism. 
And as we were baptized, so we rejoice for having received that sign and seal. And as we witness it, may we be faithful to make proper use of it. We rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is conveyed through the waters of baptism. May we be faithful to worship you accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.